Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ali Bennett. I'm a recent PhD graduate from UCL and postdoctoral fellow at the Paul Mellon Centre in London. Today I'm here to talk to Dr Sarah Longuerre, the author of Cracks in the Dome, Fractured Histories of Empire in the Zanzibar Museum. 1897 to 1964, which was published by Rutledge in 2015. Sarah is a senior lecturer in the School of History and Heritage at the University of Lincoln. Her work examines the colonial histories of East Africa and the Indian Ocean world through material and visual culture. She's published widely on this topic, not only through the book that we're discussing today, Cracks in the Dome, but also through several other book chapters and articles and in a 2012 volume co-edited with John McAleer, entitled Curating Empire, Museums and the British Imperial Experience. In today's discussion, we'll explore one of the most monumental and recognisable landmarks from Zanzibar's years as a British protectorate, the distinctive domed building of the Zanzibar Museum, also known as the Bayt al-Amani, or Peace Memorial Museum. This building is widely known and familiar to Zanzibaris and visitors alike. Yet the complicated and compelling history behind its construction and collection has been overlooked by historians until now. Drawing on a rich and wide range of hitherto unexplored archival, photographic, architectural and material evidence, this book is the first serious investigation of this remarkable institution. Although the museum was not opened until 1925, This book traces the longer history of colonial display, which culminated in the establishment of the Zanzibar Museum. It reveals the complexity of colonial knowledge production in the changing political context of the 20th century British Empire, and explores the broad spectrum of people from diverse communities who shaped its existence as staff, informants, collectors and teachers. Through vivid narratives involving people, objects, 
and exhibits. This book exposes the fractures, contradictions and tensions in creating and maintaining a colonial museum and casts light on the conflicted character of the colonial mission in East Africa. So turning now to our speaker, Sarah Longuerre, I'd like to welcome you to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your book today. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. So just wondered if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about how you became interested in your specific field of study, namely East Africa, but also the wider Indian Ocean world. Well, when I first started studying imperial history as an undergraduate, which was a long time ago in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, India tended to be the main focus of courses that I took. Um, But when I came to do postgraduate study on imperial history, um, in particular looking at museums and empire, India seemed to be very well served in the literature, um, but East Africa had been very little studied. Um, So with my earlier interest in India and my supervisor, Hilary Sapphire, as an Africanist, I was particularly drawn to East Africa, very much due to its connections with the Indian Ocean world. It seemed to bring together my existing interests and those I wanted to explore further. Mm-hmm. And in thinking about museums, East Africa has such a rich and complex connected history. And I was fascinated by how, how colonial curators interpreted or misinterpreted these narratives. Um, But also working at the British Museum, as I did while undertaking the research for this book, also made me question and think much more closely about spatial categorization of objects. So, for example, um, in the British Museum collections, there's a Chinese spoon collected by Claude Hollis, um, a figure featured in his book, who who you will know about from your work. Um, And he collected this object in Lamu, and that is located in the Africa collections. Yet Chinese ceramics found at Kilwa are located in the Asia sections um, of the museum's collections. And so these examples showed to me how limited museum categorization can be and how objects from East Africa often resist these simple classifications. And that made the context of their collection and how they were understood all the more interesting. Mm, that's fascinating, Sarah, to think about this, the potential um, for for other types of categorization than the ones that we see in the displays currently. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned one of your um, mentors. W- was there anybody else that influenced your work um, during your early years of study? Well, you know, as, as you say, naturally, my, my supervisors at Birkbeck were critical and inspiring, encouraging me throughout, as well as being critical friends. Um, Hilary Sapphire was, as I mentioned, incredibly supportive and, and sort of gently reined in my more outlandish ideas. Um, mm-hmm. um, my other supervisor was Annie Coombs, and working with her was such a fantastic opportunity, given her groundbreaking, groundbreaking work on museums and African material culture. Um While I was researching in Zanzibar, um, Professor Abdul Sharif was an intellectual inspiration as the principal historian of Zanzibar and also as a former curator of uh, the museum um, in its uh, later state. Um, But when I was in Zanzibar, he invited me to speak to his students, um, which was a great opportunity to share my findings with um, uh, Zanzibari students. and he also had an encyclopedic knowledge of the objects and the archives. Um, so he was an, a really important support. Um, 
and then uh, although although my doctoral study was actually independent of the British Museum while I was working there, um, J.D. Hill, um, the head of research, was an important mentor. He was encouraging me to conduct research alongside my work and and in supporting my research where he could. And of course, there are countless people who you know actually uh, influence your projects along the way. But th- those are just some of the people who really stand out when thinking about who really helped and guided me along this journey. Mm, thanks, Sarah. I think it's important to note, um, yes, your PhD studies were, you were working at the British Museum, but your PhD studies were separate. Um, so you, you had some interesting insights there. Um, so how did the book idea actually develop for you? Um, when did the idea come about? And, and how did that happen? Well, when I was initially looking at museums in Zanzibar, I had been working on various ideas of how to think about collecting display um, in Eastern Africa. Um, And I was looking actually more at the contemporary representation of of slavery as a sort of starting point. Um, But I kept coming back when I was looking at the sites and and the collections of how did the colonial museum develop? Um, And I just kept on kind of coming up against this question of, I I need to know where the museum sort of world started in Zanzibar to be able to understand these later developments. And uh, the uh, Zanzibar Museum or Peace Memorial Museum only featured as a footnote in other publications. And that made me even more determined to find out more. Um, And it was only when I spent six months in the Zanzibar archives that an incredibly rich institutional history emerged. I hadn't expected to find such an unusual set of stories about objects, the building, people, uh, regional networks, gender, colonial education, um, just everything seemed to be going on in this one building. Um, And so that made me think, well, actually, this is naturally where the book I have to write, because uh, in order to understand all these later um, representations, this is the kind of foundational story. So coming back um, from Zanzibar with such a wealth of material, it only seemed natural to focus the project on the museum itself and show the range of histories that a single institution can contain. Mm, That's fascinating, Sarah. So many stories to tell in one institution. Uh, Where did you um, envisage positioning the book historiographically when you, you were in the planning and writing stage? Well, I think that I I feel that the book fits into the series of studies which seek to examine museums and empire critically. So, you know, building on the work of Annie Coombs, but also Claire Wintle, Louise Tithercott, and and also, I suppose, John Mackenzie in the kind of wider picture of comparing museums and empire across the world. But also uh, what I think was important about this is how to complicate how museums should be seen. It is is too simple to say that museums were monuments of empire, um, however much their makers might have wanted them to appear that way. Um, Mm. So what I hope is that my intervention shows the much more messy process of creating museums in the colonial world, um, in spite of the kind of monumental facades they might have presented everything was much more fragile and, and contingent behind those uh, behind the scenes. Mm. And I think um, you're touching there on, on one of the, the main arguments of the book, but could you just talk us through some of the kind of key overarching arguments that you make in the book? Well, I think, as I said, that's a sort of, uh, that I've, I've kind of summarised this idea of looking at this kind of, uh, the messiness and, and in a way the chaos of museums. Um, so, and I think that really museums need to be examined much more closely to understand their role in colonial society. Um, I think that I wanted to demonstrate and show that the formation of a museum was very much a coalescence of factors 
rather than any kind of empire-wide project, which I think is can sometimes be can almost appear the case. It actually needed various factors to to coincide. So an enthusiastic amateur scientific and historical community, um, but also some available funding to create them in the first place. Um, and these things were hard to come by. Um, and this haphazard nature of their creation also then often formed future problems in their maintenance. Um, and these might seem like very mundane issues when thinking about the bigger questions of representation of cultures, but actually they fundamentally shape them, these um, much more um, administrative and financial processes. Um, and I also, I think I found very interesting in this example was that far from being a government mouthpiece, the, the government actually undermined several of its activities while the curator attempted to work with local people in education work. So I think that the book shows clearly how much of museum work is about compromise and how rarely did it follow the pattern um, that was planned by its um, curators, progenitors um, and uh, those in charge of it and even what the government might have wanted it to be. Um, and the building itself falling down during the construction and appearing different to the architect's vision seemed to epitomise the argument of the book, hence the title Cracks in the Dome. Mm. Um, Sarah, you, you've already mentioned the word colonial museum, um, and I suppose that's what we might call the Zanzibar Museum. Um, it was formed by British colonial authorities. And in your introduction, you touch on some really interesting comparisons and links between the Zanzibar Museum and museums in other parts of East Africa, elsewhere in the empire and in Britain. Could you talk us through this a little bit more and explain what influence Zanzibar's positioning in the Indian Ocean had on its identity, if any at all? And also perhaps touch on how it compares to other museums in the Indian Ocean world. Um, well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I think um, I was very keen to set up in, in the book that this needs to be situated within the global museum network and how it was influenced by the creation of museums elsewhere, and then it subsequently influenced them. And I think it was also important for me as studying a small museum in a colonial territory to look at what was happening in small museums in Britain at the same time and actually how similar many of the challenges that they faced um, were. Um, you know, often small museums here were staffed by volunteer curators as well. They had little money. You know, these kind of, uh, these sort of issues really informed how I understood what was going on in Zanzibar um, and then how actually what was very specific to its Indian Ocean world context. I think in terms of the Zanzibar Museum's influence in the current colonial era, its impact was certainly directed more towards the African continent. So um, the work with the new Dar es Salaam Museum, which was founded some uh, 14 years after Zanzibar, um, and uh, you know it was highly um, uh, influential in creating those new displays. Um, and we also see that with um, Ailsa Nicole Smith, the curator in the late 1930s, her attempts to forge an East African Museum Federation. So we see um, very much the viewpoint going in that direction at that stage. However, the museum itself was certainly influenced by the Indian Ocean world. Its architecture, its collections, I mean, the significant ceramics collection, for example, and its narratives about Zanzibar's oceanic and maritime history and its more recent history as an Omani sultanate. So by this stage, museums in India had been well established for some time. Um, so by that, by the 20th century. So. Um, I think that set up an idea of um, a museum being something that a, co a colony 
so to speak, should have. Um, but they also provided a blueprint for what they might look like. Um, and again, similarly to um, museums in India, they were drawing on in places architecturally, they drew on some local forms or a, a, a European idea of what local form could be, local forms could be used. Um, but also like museums um, in, in India, they focused in South Asia, they focused upon the local. Um, so it was very much collecting and presenting local history back to local people rather than, as in metropolitan museums, displaying the world. Um, so I think that we can see Zanzibar very much fitting into a chronology of Indian Ocean World uh, museums um, around the Ocean Rim um, from Mumbai um, through you know, other parts of uh, the northern Indian Ocean. Um, and uh, but it also has a very distinctive presence because obviously it also has this continental influence coming in and that is where it is being influential. Fantastic. Thank you. So let's now turn to some of the individual chapters. In addition to the introduction and conclusion, the book consists of six chapters, which follow a broadly chronological but also a thematic structure. And the Zanzibar Museum opened in 1925, but in your book you outline the importance of its much longer prehistory uh, to its later formation. Um, so let's uh, start with chapter one, where you provide a really interesting discussion of this prehistory. In 1890, Zanzibar was turned into a British protectorate. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened in these early years? You highlight the idea of the British imagination about Zanzibar during this time. What was this about and how did it link or not link to British concepts of the wider Indian Ocean world? Well, the the idea of the, the prehistory was something which I sort of uh, worked on as I um, as I was trying to establish what happened, why did it open in 1925, what were the circumstances under which this happened. And it was really a case of going back and delving back and delving back and kept realising that I needed to go back further to really understand what was going on. And so I, I sort of, I like this as a model of trying to understand museums is you do have to think about their prehistory to understand um, how they came about. Um, and it was and, and also how colonial society had be, had been set up so that and how that influenced the formation of the museum there were people and object stories to uncover um, as well as how the British related to material culture in the region it was a very small community so many characters who were present in the 1890s actually we can see their influence upon the museum collections or how Zanzibar's history is understood so a, a figure such as uh, Sir William Lloyd Matthews who was the first minister in the 1890s and he died in 1901 um, but he had an enduring influence over how the British colonial community acted and he was a collector but he was also a large and alive character who um, spoke Arabic and had um, um, and it was very much involved in the local community, um, and so he and and, under, and you know, purported to understand uh, the colonial society very much. Um, and it was he and he was uh, in charge when the first curator came out to Zanzibar. So had again an influence over what we subsequently see happening some thirty years later. Um, so that was why, and I kept delving. And then you know I found the case of a. Uh, 
a failed museum project in the, the late 1900s, so around 1907 to 1909. Again, another enthusiastic um, uh, agent, uh, consul, um, was keen to build a museum. He amassed a collection and then that dispersed. And then I wanted to trace where those went. Did they come back to when the museum finally came? So again, it, I really, to understand 1925, it, it required this longer story. A recurring theme, as you say, was how Zanzibar was imagined and how it did or did not live up to expectations of the so-called um, Eastern city, in quotes. Um, certainly, this was a notion formed out of British visions of the East and the Indian Ocean world. Um, and again, uh, when thinking about this, it relates to the architecture of the museum, but the uh, um, there was a quote um, which was used and paraphrased by Richard Burton back um, in the mid-19th century about how uh, Zanzibar's uh, landscape was you know, deemed to be that it would have been a perfect eastern city had it except for its lack of minarets and domes. Um, and this is an idea of what an eastern city uh, should look like, formed out of, as I said, the um, experiences elsewhere of, of Europeans in the Indian Ocean world and, and Arabian world. Um, and, you know, I go on to argue about how the architecture is potentially a way of rectifying these kind of uh, and, and making it live up to these expectations. So um, I think what's interesting there is that partly that um, the way it was seen as an, as an eastern city very much sees it as part of an Indian Ocean network in these early years. Um, another interesting factor, which is worth noting is that many of the fig figures um, featured in that first chapter, such as Alexander Stuart Rogers, who was the first minister after Matthews's death, uh, death was was uh, uh, they were career Indian Ocean colonial servants. Several of the first people to serve in Zanzibar uh, were born in India and served in India, um, and then later, uh, when they returned, might be stationed in India, then then moved over to East Africa after it was colonised in the late nineteenth um, uh, century. Um, he uh, Roger served in Lamu and then Zanzibar. So uh, several of the officials who moved to become part of the East African colonial structure had experience in India. So again, we can see how these flows of ideas and colonial experience inform the kind of colonial society we see in Zanzibar. Thanks, Sarah. You've already touched a little bit on um, there on the dis design and construction in terms of the colonial imagination. But in chapter two, you, you delve into this in more detail, um, particularly looking at, at its design and construction between 1919 and 1925. So maybe we can talk about that a, a little bit more in, in some greater depth. Yes. Yeah, so, well, yeah, so this was one of the most exciting areas to work on. Um, and there's some real wow moments in the archive, which I'll, I'll come on to talk about. Um, but again, even just the, the length of duration, the fact that this museum, it was a peace memorial museum planned to celebrate the end of the First World War. Um, so that's when it, discussions about its um, uh, form started in 1919 and uh, commitments to funds uh, began at that stage. But it didn't open until 1925. Um, and uh, so, and this again was a curiosity um, uh, in in the story. Um, the building is so striking and unusual in Zanzibar. There are no other, there were no other domed buildings at the time, apart from another smaller one built by the same architect. Um, and it is often likened to a mosque. Um, and I hope to delve further into the architect's intentions about how and why this design came about. Um, John Sinclair, the architect became a key figure. Um, he uh, he was also the um, chief secretary and then later the um, 
um, the, the principal administrator in Zanzibar, um, but he didn't finish his architectural training uh, when he was in London. So I, I had to trace his history a little, um, and uh, he was. Uh, uh, he didn't finish his architectural training in London in the late 1890s. Um, and it was through his career as a colonial officer um, that he actually carried on as an amateur architect. So here's a situation where in a in small new colonial um, uh, uh City uh, cities in East Africa um, with just uh, establishing themselves. He was the only one with any architectural training. So he was deemed the most qualified to design new buildings. So when he first went to East Africa in the late 1890s, he um, was commissioned to help work on the Mombasa Cathedral. And we see him then when he comes to Zanzibar to continue to uh, design buildings alongside his work. Um, uh, and so uh, he wrote a fascinating memoir, um, The Senex Africanus, which is now in, in Ca the Cambridge, in the UL in Cambridge. But alas, rarely did he mention the influence or thought behind this building or, or any of his other many designs. Um, so I thought I'd found you know, the answer to why did he build a museum that looked like a mosque um, in, in this memoir. But uh, unfortunately, he didn't mention, uh, he did, didn't really talk about it. He was talking much more excited about talking about the people he knew and various um, uh, safari uh, trips that he went on. Um, but the story grew even more interesting when I went to the Zanzibar archives. And by luck, um, the fantastic archivist in Zanzibar, when I asked for a particular class mark that just said Peace Memorial Design, said he gave me one and said, but there's actually a few others, which I think went with it, but they don't seem to be associated, but I'll just show them to you anyway. And he presented me with the original drawings of the building. And uh, these designs um, were really quite different to what um, what emerged. Um, it was a much taller building. It had two stories. Um, it had much greater um, reference to uh, work he'd actually worked on. Um, and I argue that he uh, was much more influenced by cathedral design in Britain um, through various structures and um, its uh, vertical emphasis and various other features, which then got removed when the building fell down during this um, construction. So I, you know, I suggest that St. Clair actually hadn't been seeking to pastiche a mosque as it was rather he was drawing on a plethora of influences um, from local forms um, things he'd seen elsewhere in his colonial service um, as well as um, British's English cathedral design um, and it was when the building fell down during construction um, and uh, uh, Sinclair actually left Zanzibar around that time as well he, he retired um, that he uh, that the building was then reduced in size and uh, became the building that we see now. Um, but again, this was just another example of the, you know, it wasn't all going to plan and it's a much more fragile and a different kind of monument to the one that was intended. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. It's absolutely fascinating. So we've spoken about uh, the architect. Turning to chapter three, here you scrutinise the people who worked with and in the museum between 1925 and 1942. So who were they and and why were they important? Well, as with all museums, um, its progenitors and its collectors curators and their particular interests had a huge influence over what objects were displayed and how they were exhibited um and and i think this is true of all museums that you re, you know we, we still you, you work with the legacy of previous curators and their particular focus research interests um their treatment of objects and so on so i felt it necessary to trace these individuals longer histories so that we could really understand the museum's history and the tensions that were in it so um, the first curator, um, uh, Alfred Henry Spurrier, um, he was a retiree in the 1920s. And I mentioned earlier, he had a long experience on the island. He'd um, come out in the late 19th century um, as a medical doctor. And going through his papers, they, his correspondence is preserved in the Zanzibar archives. And alongside you know, his various letters, which were fantastic, uh, well, the various letters he received, um, we, his outgoing correspondence was there, the ones he received, uh, we can get a picture of some of the um, what's going on in the museum. Um, but they also show how he engaged with the local community. There's lots of notes from uh, local people in Swahili asking him for help, and he does seem to have um, had a good rapport with local people or seen as someone sympathetic. Um, but for people in the 1920s, he was somebody who seemed to have lived Zanzibar's history. They talk about how he could describe the sultans of old and um, uh, these figures um, from uh, Zanzibar's history. Um, so it seemed, he seemed ex- the, just the kind of person who could be a curator. Um, but he was also devoted to the education of local people. And this had been established. He'd even set up a small museum in the public health department earlier um, in the 1910s. So um, he, he naturally seemed like a curator, but was committed to education. Um, he died in uh, 1935, and then his successor was sought, um, and the government of Zanzibar at the time particularly wanted, uh, well, an, an, a, a, a circular, an advert was circulated, and uh, applicants were made to um, the colonial office in London, um, who then interviewed them. But one of the applicants was a woman, and uh, the uh, the colonial office wrote to Zanzibar and said, well, this person is, uh, we have someone who's very, by far the most qualified, but she's a woman. Is this going to be a problem? So there was clearly a less qualified man available who the colonial office thought might be just the more suitable person. Um, but the uh, Zanzibar Museum, the Zanzibar government wrote back and said, well, actually, a woman would be very good for our uh, museum because we have we really try and engage with local people and they uh, and what uh, we aren't able due to the Perda restrictions amongst uh, local Muslim women able to welcome to the museum. So they had. Uh, times apparently when per- women could um, uh, enter the museum, but uh, that the guards had to stand outside and that the um, 
and there was no one to show them around. So they said there was great possibility um, in having a woman um, as, as a curator. So she was then appointed, but I do think that appointment process is quite revealing about who was, uh, d- uh, what qualifications were necessary and who was deemed suitable. Mm. So Nicol Smith um, uh, was uh, Scottish and she trained, uh, she went to university and then trained in Cambridge, uh, at the Cambridge Museum of uh, Archaeology and um, uh, uh, Anthropology, as it is now. Um, and she shared many interests with Sperrier about her commitment to education, um, but she didn't have any specific training such as Spurrier had had in medicine. Um, and this then led into some issues about her taking on some of these um, very important public health education programs that um, Spurrier had instigated. Um, and that led the government to cast doubt on her ability to deliver this kind of education and also said, well, we have nurses, can't they do the same work? So she ran into repeated um, problems with the government through her determination to try and run programmes, for her complaints about the limited funds, about their lack of understanding of a museum. There's repeated um, uh, mentions in the archives about these um, struggles that she has. and, um, you know, it's very frustrating to read these as you see her kind of coming up against these issues. And eventually she resigned um, uh, because she, uh, uh, due, to, due to various reasons, um, she'd only just achieved the permanent and pensionable status, which she'd been fighting for for three years. Um, and then, you know, the relations broke down that she decided to leave. So um, I find this a very interesting comparison of somebody who was basically an amateur but had deep knowledge of Zanzibar compared to somebody who had museum training um, and uh, and experience but less local experience um, and therefore was in a more fragile situation. Um, I also talk about um, how each of them were supported by associates. So while the curator is often seen as as the key person, we do also have to remember the wider number of people who are involved. Um, And that particularly in a setting like this, there were volunteers and um, uh, those who supported and helped um, in the museum a lot. So... um, uh, W.H. Ingrams was a key supporter for Speria. He was an administrator, uh, administrator and also an anthropologist. Um, he wrote um, one of the first histories of the island, um, and he also wrote the, the um, a lot of he curated and supported in the local industries sections of the museum. Um, he goes on to be a very significant collector um, elsewhere in, in southern Arabia. Um, so he he was a key figure, and actually I saw his text replicated in um, in various places, um, which uh, you know texts which he drafted the museum end up in part of his books and so on. So there's some interesting uh, genealogies of his writing there. I also highlighted um, Mohammed uh, Abdul Rahman, who was I, I kind of called the key associate of Ailsa Nicole Smith, who was a local school teacher, um, who supported her greatly in the museum, and uh, she supported him in writing an article which was published um, and uh, on aspects of Zanzibar's culture. Um, and again, she uh, what I wanted to emphasise was that she actually had this local network that she was engaging with. And on her um, resignation, she did recommend him as the most appropriate uh, replacement for her. Uh, as the curator. Um, and this was too bold a step for the Zanzibar government to actually appoint a local person as, as the curator. Um, but I think it's very interesting that she actually felt that was the most qualified person for her uh, for, to be replaced by her at that time. Mm. Um, and I also talk about the museum staff and, you know, uh, uh, I think I've spent a long time on this question now, but uh, he, uh, but, but there were other key figures. So Juma Rajab is the one who I uh, really want to highlight who was um, uh, one of the, the senior museum assistant, but he created 
all of the cases and displays for the museum. He trained in taxidermy um, and was absolutely fundamental to the workings of the museum um, in its early stages um, through to until his death. And um, uh, his workshop, in his workshop, he was able to conjure up cases to display, um, you know, all the kinds of objects they had. And, and he was part of the team who went out to train the new staff in the Dar es Salaam Museum in the uh, late 1930s. So I think, again, it, what I tried to do was recognise all the different figures who made up the museum um, in, in this chapter, because it's so easy to overlook the really important contributions some of these figures make. And mm, critical to to um, discuss those voices that aren't represented in official documentation. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And then in Chapter 4, you highlight the tension um, between the idea of museums being part of a strategic and ideologically driven colonial project and the realities, pressures and contingencies of their actual day-to-day running. In the Zanzibar Museum, you specifically note the what you call the unsystematic nature of its collections and displays. So can you talk us through your findings here a little bit more? Yes, well, I mean, in, in some ways, it's it's interesting looking back at this, that it takes us quite a long time in the book to get to the actual objects and display, which is what everyone kind of thinks of uh, when you think of a museum. And actually, that is deliberate, because mm. what I wanted to show is actually how many other factors go into creating what you then see on display um, mm. uh, in order to understand the context of that. Um, well, I think with the... Um, uh, what I wanted to show in, in this chapter was, again, part of the genealogies of these um, of the displays that ended up in Zanzibar, um, where the origins of the displays and the objects came from. Um, but very much, and I suppose unsystematic is, is something that um, I, I think all museum collections, in a way, uh, have to deal with, and, and, and how uh, is that collections are subject to so many forces, whether that is funding, what collectors donate, who the stakeholders are. And the displays are very much an attempt to find order um, in all of this. And um, many of the, the struggles and the tensions we see are this kind of dealing with what the, the sort of objects you have and the difference between the objects you have and the stories that you, you want to tell. And I think some coherence was um, was achieved, um, but I think we can um, uh, sort of, re- uh, we, we they very much were dealing, as I say, as, as you say, on the actual day-to-day running of with much more um with, with very complicated sets of objects to try and piece together. Um, I think the, um, th- there were some, uh, th- some very interesting uh, object stories, which I tried to uncover with this, uh, of particularly um, key objects of importance to Zanzibar and the changing nature of those displays and where they'd previously been displayed. I managed to uncover some displays which had uh, completely disappeared and ephemeral temporary displays which were really fascinating there was one created in uh what was called the indian jail building a building formerly created uh, in the uh in the 1890s for um so-called higher class of um uh, prisoners so indians and uh, europeans this building was no longer used for that but it ha- had a building quite near the museum and this was taken over in the late 1920s as a um, place to expand the museum into and uh the um and they tried some very original things in there. So one of the um, one of the displays very much spoke to Indian Ocean um, uh, histories um, when it charted the history of um, arms and armory on Zanzibar. Um, another one uh, looked at all the contributions of different communities and migrant communities in Zanzibar, both those from the Indian Ocean world and from uh, the East African mainland. Um, and this is you know it's quite bold and an interesting step at this stage. Another of the 
the cells, as they were called, because they were in the former jail cells, um, was a um, was the, took the form of a um, an Arab um, household, um, so a kind of period home display, as it were, and and another was set up in with in consultation with um, Swahili um, local people um, to display a Swahili house um, and what it would look like, but also try to suggest some good public health measures that local people could take on in order to um, improve public health. So it had both a kind of a very paternalistic um, uh, drive to it, but also um, a, a, uh, an idea of actually consulting and talking to local people about what their lives looked like and how those could be displayed. So this was, you know, this this only lasted. I didn't find any um, evidence of when it when it closed, but I probably around 1930 when they built the museum annex, um, and I just found that a really interesting way in which they were dealing with new ideas and new material and, and new kind of colonial uh, projects such as the, the public health projects. Um, and I think in terms of the sort of uh, just thinking a bit about the, the Indian Ocean uh, world, I think I also in this chapter tried to trace some of the origins of the displays in the uh, Wembley exhibition in uh, 1924 to 5, which um, is actually very important in understanding the narrative which we see in the um, in the Zanzibar Museum. Uh, the guide to the Wembley exhibition um, produced, uh, well, which was published in 1924, was actually large chunks of that were transferred into the, uh, the East Africa, uh, the history of East Africa, uh, school history of East Africa, um, and informed very much the uh, uh, many of the sections of the museum reflect very closely this guide. So I found it very interesting that um, a, a guide that was written for a public audience in Britain was then transferred and became fundamental to these um, uh, to both displays and education in Zanzibar itself. And in that guide. Partly due to the nature of Wembley, we see uh, quite in a distinctive Indian Ocean history being presented um, at that time with uh, Kenya and Tanganyika becoming um, much more uh, significant and productive as uh, colonial territories. Zanzibar was waning in kind of influence by that stage um, and significance. And we see it very much drawing on its longer history um, of connection in the Indian Ocean world and celebrating that, trying to create a contrast with those um, countries on the East African mainland. So that sort of narrative of being distinctive, I think, transfers quite closely into um, the displays we see in Zanzibar. So I find this idea of transmission of uh, the ideas which are both being transmitted in London, but then being replicated and reshaped and, uh, in Zanzibar, a really interesting one, um, particularly when we're thinking about these ideas of how Zanzibar and its place in the, in the Indian Ocean world were understood at this time. Mm, fascinating thinking about channels of the movement of knowledge, um, both from the metropole to Zanzibar and across the Indian Ocean world. Um, in Chapter 5, you note that the museum was designed to be an educational centre for all communities. So how far was this an aspiration, was this aspiration realised and, and what were the inherent challenges with this aspiration? Well, that's a, that's a very good question and it's, it's a really complicated story um, mm. and uh, because uh, I think unlike some museums uh, created elsewhere in the empire, which sometimes might emerge out of local collections. So, um, for example, I mean, the, the museums you know, you know more about um, in uh, Kenya and Uganda um, were often emerged out of East, um, sort of natural history societies um, where they had mm. an existing collection often born out of, um, you know, study of animals and, and uh, local botany. 
and then the museum emerges from that existing collection. Whereas in Zanzibar, the museum was created um, without a collection. There was no starting off collection. They had to create it. Um, at, but it was one mission, which was you know very much pushed by Spurrier, the first curator, was that it had to be educational and it was in the service of local people. So, um, and I think, you know, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head that, you know, there are inherent challenges for this. It was always going to be part of a colonial, um, you know, it's always under the auspices of colonial education, of the way in which it was, what was deemed good for local people, what should they know, how should their lives be improved by um, the uh, protectorate government. So all of this has to be understood in, in that context. Um, but at the same time, there were, um, you know, the, the efforts, I, what I wanted to do is chart the efforts that were being made by the curators um, in, in their attempts to do this. Um, the museum's creation coincided with this sort of era of colonial development with the acts um, uh, which were due to support this. And due to Spurrier's uh, role as a uh, medical officer, he was very much tied to this and public health became central. Um, so again, like as I mentioned earlier, that became a problem later when actually that became more professionalised and moved away from the museum in the late 1930s when Nicholas Smith was involved. But at this time, Spurrier and the museum seemed like the ideal place to do this. So they set up lots of displays around this. They had giant mosquitoes there to try and use as examples um, to show the transmission of malaria. Um, they, uh, Sperrier and um, instigated a series of public of, of displaying public health films. Um, so they in the annex that they created in 1930, because the collections were too big by then, um, there was also space to show films. Um, and that was uh, very much used by local people. Um, later on, they took films out into the Shamba, into the countryside, um, displayed, you know, some quite evocative descriptions of showing films um, displayed under the stars, just, um, you know, sh uh, pro projecting them onto a white sheet in, in villages. Um, you know, these films were well uh having watched some of them which were um have been available on the colonialfilm.org of unhooking the hookworm and other such you know these are these aren't thrillers and um, <laughs> things that they enjoyed hugely they are very you know spoken over by a kind of classic pate voice voiceover um and uh you know uh, uh might not be necessarily engaging but uh, and, and also it's noted that uh, the audiences always liked the kind of warm-up um, uh, films which are often uh, I think they mentioned Charlie Chaplin-esque kind of short films that they showed at the beginning which you know very much more enjoyed um, but these were presented alongside these much more worthy um, films but we also see evidence of um, the museum assistants going out to present these and translating alongside um, so as to try and animate them and get over the issue of, of them being understood. So we see, you know, there's some very, very innovative early practices going on, um, trying to diversify the way that, um, uh, you know, the diversify the medium by which information is presented using models as well as film, as well as slides, lantern slides, um, you know, various kinds of um, um, uh, to try try and engage people as best as possible, and um, and I found this absolutely fascinating. I myself was working in museum education at the time, so was uh, particularly mm -hmm. interested in in discovering this story, um, and. 
you know, I think it was, uh, and the numbers that you saw where, where possible were, were very, uh, were, were high. And, you know, the school children who came and came on tours, um, you know, again, were, were high in numbers. And it, so there was, it really did become a place that was seen as, as, as a centre of education, colonial education, that is. So re- mm-hmm. all, as I said, all of this needs to be considered under that bracket. Um, mm-hmm. But, and, you know, what local people thought of this, we, you know, obviously we don't know. They, you know, they came, they came back, whether this was just a diverse, on a Saturday morning when they showed the films um you know we don't we don't know um but uh, there was certainly uh, activity and a, a regular attendance um along with this so it was um again the educational programs they had um received funding from the Carnegie funds to expand the film service in the late 1930s and again the use of this and the deployment of the funds was something which was part of Nicholas Smith's resignation um and then it that kind of element of it very much sags um after her departure and a series of kind of part-time curators in the 1940s um so it's uh, i think there were many contradictions in the uh, in the mission of the museum the fact that it had been set up as a public health center didn't only worked under the certain circumstances with its founding curator um and uh, you know, actually other places, other methods were deemed better for doing that as that became a more professionalised um, system. So its focus then returned to the history and the natural history collections. Um, but that itself um, then, but as I said, without the sort of professional curator or a commit, uh, you know, full-time curator then, that service obviously diminished. Um, and so it, we see a fall away of its, um, as its educative role at that time. Mm. So that's the shifting role of the museum in the development era. And then in chapter six, you talk about the role of the museum in preserving Zanzibar's past in the era of decolonisation between 1942 and 64. So can you tell us a little bit more about its activities during this pivotal time? Well, I think the um, what I focused um, uh, quite a bit on in that final chapter is its um, shift to um, looking at the archives of the museum and preserving the archives. Um, one part of the collection, which only a few were actually on display, um, very important early documents in Zanzibar's history. Some of the oldest preserved documents in Eastern Africa were there. And um, these were often deemed as treasures of the collection, but were very much kept you know, behind locked doors. Um, and again, this is one of the examples where actually there was an empire-wide um, uh, initiative. Um, you know, public, the colonial development was one of them. Uh, the other one was the, the move to encourage colonies to create archives and preserve material um, in the late 40s and 50s. Um, and uh, this was then seen to be part of an important duty. Um, they appointed um, uh, their next appointment of C.H. Thompson was he was actually a trained archivist rather than a curator so he had this dual role which he found very frustrating being a curator archivist and he said anybody okay. who actually understands museums realise these roles are very different um, And but his, uh, I suppose his mission he was trying to balance these but he was tasked with trying to design and, and explain what was needed in an archive um, but he was hugely frustrated again by the government's lack of understanding about what an archive actually was and what was needed. Um, and he was, you know, he said it's fine to measure up how many folders or, you know, how many, what size shelving is needed. And, you know, we can do that. But actually, I also need commitment to people staffing this. And that was something the government just was very reluctant to do, to actually commit to maintaining 
assistance to keep looking after preserving, adding, using this archive. Um, and these, these kind of became sticking points. The governments were very, very reluctant to commit to anything, which was a maintenance fund. Um, uh, they just wanted to put up a building and leave it, um, which yeah. I think is kind of what they'd hoped they could do with the museum in the first place. Um, mm. So it was. Um, so that was a very, a really interesting um, story. Um, uh, particularly because when I was uh, sort of reading quite a lot of this, it was um, you know those discussions about disposal of documents, what should be kept, what should be not, and um, I was researching and writing some of this as the migrated archive um, sort of discussions were happening um, with relation to uh, um, the Hanslope. Um, archives being discovered as it were from the fco um and the uh, you know the, the reveal about documents being destroyed in kenya and malaya and um these were and so researching all this in this context provides some very interesting kind of comparable examples of where there were discussions about well we can just take all those documents i think the easiest thing would be take these out and burn them um oh. and uh, you know there, there's some very fascinating examples of how that legacy is dealt with in this case i don't think they were trying to burn contentious documents or hide stories really it seemed to be much more practical and um considerations of space and expense but again, it's still the destruction of, of, of the archive. Um, so um, I find it was a really interesting chapter to research um, because you were deploying evidence and reading evidence which had survived, not knowing how and why it had, that particular of, of evidence had been, why the colonial archive was created and what the logic of it and, and what was preserved and what was not. Um, so it was a very, um, it, it felt very kind of, uh, self-referential being in the archives sitting there studying its own history as I was um, uh, uh, you know, looking at these very same documents at the same time. Um, I mean, the museum fades a little bit out of view in the story at this time, and and, that, and it did so in the in the archival material as well because of this focus to try and build the new archives, which were actually only opened. Uh, they actually ended up in one of the first um, uh, institutions opened under the new uh, independent Zanzibar. So it was a kind of interesting time. And um, at one point um, during the revolution, there was talk of somebody taking it over and making it into their office. You know, it was it was that close to being never being being, being opened at all. Um, uh, I mean, we did see some there are little moments where the museum comes to light. There are particularly interesting uh, discussions about whether the museum itself and the way it presented certain histories um, were uh, contentious with the different the confrontations going on between the different uh, political parties in Zanzibar, particularly over the history of slavery and the Arab um, control of that. Um, so this led to um, a discussion about a set of slave stocks which were in the museum and uh, were, were deemed to be potentially inflammatory and showed that the um, and the uh, deemed to be critical of the Arab um, party who um, the, the, who were see, seemed to be kind of trying to, the British were sort of supporting into government. Um, and uh, it, we, we, there's a letter which just says that those are ta were taken out to, and dumped in the sea. So those objects were disposed of because of their potential political um, meaning at that time. Uh, but, you know, a kind of amazing example of where we know why an object hasn't survived when so little from the era of slavery actually in East Africa does survive. So um, it was, you know, it was a complex period and it did end up, it shifts in tone a little bit in the, in the final chapter because we see this change into, and focus into the idea of archives. It had always been the museum and the archive together and we begin to see it separating out at that time in, in the era of decolonization. Absolutely. 
Thank you, Sarah, for painting such a vivid picture of the complexity surrounding this fascinating historical institution and for situating it for us in its multiple local colonial and Indian Ocean contexts. I wonder if we could maybe finish now with some concluding marks about who you hope will read the book and what sort of impact you hope it will have, including more broadly on how we understand the Indian Ocean world. Well, I hope it will be of interest to anyone interested in in Zanzibar, in museums and and the messy history of Britain's empire. These are obviously uh, questions that people are very live at the moment. And I think this does offer um, an important case study and an example of um, the realities of uh, what museums in the empire were doing. Um, As a a micro history of an institution, I hope that it shows what you can do and what the many wider insights you can gain into colonial relations when you examine it in this level, really taking a single institution and just exploding the number of areas you can explore and the number of people you can drag in and the number of of, of stories you can tell. Um, I think it's also very much an Indian Ocean story. Um, We can see how Indian Ocean histories are interpreted and displayed. Um, As I said, they were almost deployed to make Zanzibar seem distinctive as the mainland territories were becoming more insignificant in the 1920s and 30s. Um, We see how certain stories such as the Omani influence in Zanzibar was very much celebrated. Um, I thought one interesting element in the kind of Indian Ocean story is how the South Asian community in Zanzibar, who were very significant and, and powerful, they were involved in the museums, but they were relatively absent from the displays. So we don't really see the history of the South Asian migration and their contributions um, displayed on um, um, in, in the actual kind of object displays. Yet they were also important benefactors and donors, and they were involved in many other ways. So again, this idea, you've got to look much more broadly at the museum community to really understand the dynamics and to see how connected um, it was. Thank you, Sarah. Well, we're coming to the end of the podcast and I just wanted to finish by asking a little bit more about what you're currently working on and about any future projects that you have in the pipeline. Well, um, so the uh, I'm still thinking about uh, collecting and material culture. Um, and so mm. my interest in, in Zanzibar on this um, uh, is being maintained in, in my next project. But what I'm now thinking about is um, I'm doing research on and collecting and, and representing the Indian Ocean more broadly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, uh, I received a, a Leverhulme Fellowship to do this a few years ago. So I'm now working on the book manuscript. But um, what I hope will be Um, particularly interesting is that I'm really thinking about islands here and how islands are collected and understood um, by the British in this period. So um, expanding the view. So Zanzibar was the inspiration here and thinking about it as an island off the East African coast um, and then looking at um, the Maldives and Mauritius and the Seychelles as well as sites that were collected but have very different ways in which they were collected and what these tell us about the way the Indian Ocean as a whole was understood. Can't wait to see how those projects progress, Sarah. Good luck and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored Sarah Longair's Cracks in the Dome, Fractured Histories of Empire in the Zanzibar Museum, 1897 to 1964. This is your host, Ali Bennett. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.